everybody. I want to invite you to stand this evening. Uh, thank you for being here tonight for our second service and our series of revival services this week uh, with Brother Jim Markham. Uh, what a blessing this morning uh, was, and I thank God for working in our service. Uh, we are trusting God to work in our hearts tonight. And so uh, let's pray and let's open the service in a word of prayer and ask God's blessing over the service. Uh, it's great to have um, Preacher Markham in our service tonight. Thank you for being here, brother. Would you please open our service in prayer? You know, uh, as these days in our lives, as we get closer to the end times, we're going to see more and more of, of uh, uh, the world and the government especially expecting us to do things that are against what we believe in. And they're going to expect us to, to, uh, to, to do things, even in our jobs. And I think we read, you know, in, 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 the old, in the New Testament where it talks about the end times, it'll ask us to do things that are completely to even get food, to even make a living for our families, to feed our families, they're going to expect us to do things that are contrary to what we believe in. And we read about a story about that in the Old Testament. Uh, when when, when uh, the king Nebuchadnezzar threw the, the uh, 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 Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire, and uh, when he looked in, uh, he said, our God's going to protect us. And the king looked into the fire, and he didn't see three men in there. He saw four of them. And the fourth one was Jesus. And so you just remember there's going to come a day uh, whenever the world calls us to bow down to the idols of this world. And uh, that's the example he gave us. Jesus is going to be with us. The Lord's going to be with us. We're not to bow. That's what this song is all about.
Stand with us. Your turn to sing. We're going to do Power in the Blood, number 176.
God's people said. Amen. You can be seated. Man, sing it like you mean it. Amen. I heard about a mansion he has built for me in glory. And I heard about the streets of gold beyond the crystal sea. About the angels singing and the old The song of victory, sing it out. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me I him, and all my love is to him. He punished me. be seated. Uh, we're going to worship tonight with our love offering. Every uh, dime tonight goes to our special speaker, Brother Jim uh, uh, McComas. about said Brother Jim Markham. <laughs> Got two gems, two preacher gems in the service tonight. But um, I thank the Lord uh, for him and his ministry. Let's be generous. Let's pray. Let's ask God's blessing over the offering. Brother Ryan, if you'll lead us in prayer.
lovely verse has been Nahum 1-7. Let's stand together tonight. Um, this is on the screen for us. Uh, we are going to say this together, and then we're going to sing about the goodness of God together. Nahum 1-7, it says that the Lord is good. Y'all say it with me. A stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Let's do that one more time. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. How many believe tonight that that verse of Scripture can help you? Um, we all experience uh, trouble in our lives, difficult seasons, and I'm thankful that the Lord is good. And um, Miss uh, Lori, often we will say something to the effect God is good, and the truth is God is good all the time. And isn't that true? Things are good, things are bad. God is good. I thank the Lord for his word tonight. Let's sing together about the goodness of God. Before we do that, I want to ask our associate pastor, Brother Cole, if you'll lead us in prayer. See the cross, the empty grave, the 
Father, tonight we thank you for being so, so good to us and being faithful to us each and every moment of our lives. Um, seeing us through, or tragedy, leading us, Lord, to triumph. Uh, Lord, teaching us through the trials and difficulties of life. For being patient, Father, with us when we are angry, when we question Father, thank you for the cross that declares sin can be forgiven. Jesus paid it all. Father, thank you for the empty tomb that declares victory over death, hell, and the grave. God, I'm thankful that tonight our enemy is defeated and we have victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God, help us to see the evidence of your goodness all around us, all over our lives. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. You can be seated. It's great to have Brother Jim McComas. Someone told me that uh, he was the mascot for Free Will Baptist Family Ministries. And um, just kidding, guys. He's not the mascot. Um, he is the uh, head, he's the CEO of Free Will Baptist uh, Family Ministries. We thank the Lord for him and his ministry. Pastor, he mentioned that this morning um, for 21 years in Ohio, and God's used him uh, greatly. I, I appreciate this morning's service, his transparency, his honesty, and um, God has led him and his dear wife through much. And I thank the Lord for their testimony, their faithfulness to God, his faithfulness to the Word of God. And tonight he's going to come, he's going to sing, and then he's going to preach to us.
Good evening. I'm very glad to be in church. How about this band? They've got one speed, and that is fast. Man, that was the victory of Jesus' breakdown. Man, alive. Did you notice the banjo featured on, on Fly Away? I'm going to leave, I mean, he, he, I'm going to leave all the jokes, the banjo jokes aside. How do you know a banjo player is at your door at your house? You know how? Because he can't find the key, the knocking will get faster, and he doesn't know when to come in. That's the way. <laughs> uh, well, I'm glad. You know, the Lord is always, I've always wanted to be a big shot, but the Lord always has ways of humbling me. And there's nothing like after the first service of revival, you preach your guts out, you pour your heart out, and the pastor gets up tonight and says, boy, didn't Brother Jim Markham do a great job. Did you notice that? <clears throat> We're off to a good start. I've made a great impression already. It was just Jim's intimidating presence here. I know that. College president, big shot. I mean, I understand. Former pastor. Uh, but... Uh, that I didn't mind, but when he got to the love offering and he stumbled, I said, if he said Jim Markham, this, this is serious business. Now, <laughs> anyway, Pastor didn't, uh, he had no idea when he was talking a little while ago about God is good all the time. He had no idea what I'd pick to sing tonight. This is a song that was written by a friend of mine, the Free Will Baptist in Tampa, Florida, Brother Roger uh, Hoy Duncan, who wrote this as a tribute to his dad, uh, Roger, and uh, Roger for many years, uh, preached with uh, Parkinson's disease. Uh, he then got cancer in the last years of his life, uh, but continued to be faithful to the Lord. And uh, this song says, "There's the, the lyric of the chorus says, he's good when I'm happy. Everybody can praise him when, he's, when things are going good. That's easy. Then it says, he's good when I'm sad. But then the line that I just think is powerful, it says, he's good when I'm somewhere in between. And I really think that's when, a lot of times, when victory or defeat is won in the Christian life are those in-between times. And that's what this song says. He's been a good God to me. Now this Christian life not always been easy oh i've had days when i've asked the lord why cause i've seen the heartache and the pain of some loved ones till it seemed all that i could do was cry but even through all their storms even through all their trials they still had a testimony when they looked at the grace and the love of their savior they said he's still been a good god to me well he's good when i'm happy he's good when i'm sad and he's good when I'm somewhere in between And he's good when the billows Have over me roll And he's good when I've won victory 
the forces of Satan that no matter what my circumstance be with all of my praise I'll say of my Savior he's still been a good God to me I might say amen to that well have you ever been blessed with one of those special days when his sweet spirit well it seems so close that's cause you were reminded of all the times the Lord had been there friend it was right when you needed him most and even when you were struggling through that hot barren desert you looked and he had sent you a little stream then you looked heaven's way and you had to say Lord you've sure been a good God to me well he's good when I'm happy and he's good when I'm sad and he's good when I'm somewhere in between and he's good when the billows have over me roll and he's good when I've won victory and so I declare to the forces of Satan that no matter what my circumstance be still been a good God to me. Yes, with all of my praise, I'll say of my Savior, Lord, you've sure been a good God to me. Oh, he's such a good God. nine Acts chapter nine you know what I've noticed you are blessed with a whole abundance of singers I mean this worship team that keeps uh, you know there several different people I didn't say that. You, you rotate on and off you're Pastor's a singer. I mean, is there anybody here that cannot sing in this church? Is there anybody? Uh, I went in the back a little while. I was looking around in the back. They got a sewing machine back there, and it's a singer, believe it or not. I mean, that's a, that's a true story. Acts chapter 9, if you've got it, say amen. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Acts. I skipped a few, but I got you headed in the right direction. <clears throat> he was the scourge of the early church. Matter of fact, I believe that the name Saul of Tarsus sent a chill 
down the spine of every early believer. He was a killer of Christians. And as Acts chapter 9 opens up, Saul is on the way down the road to Damascus to hunt down and kill some more Christians. But if you know your Bible, you know he's not going to get there, is he? Acts chapter 9, he is struck down on the road to Damascus. He hears a voice that only he can hear. He is blinded by light from heaven. He is sent to Damascus down a street called Straight to a house where there is an evangelist by the name of Ananias where he is going to be gloriously converted and he is going to have his sight restored. And his life is forever changed and as the old bluegrass, brass, the old bluegrass song imagines him saying, what was that you said, Lord? Are you talking to me? Seems the blinder I get, the better I can see. And now Saul goes to the temple and he begins to give testimony for Jesus Christ and he begins to win people and he becomes a preacher. And now the same Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem that once set him out to kill Christians, they realize what a threat he is to their whole religious system and now they have sent a hit squad to Damascus to take him out. Notice how the tables have turned. The hunter has now become the hunted. And that hit squad is on the outside of the Damascus walls, and they've got a 24-7, 365 days a year stakeout going. They, they, they're just biding their time. They know that Saul is somewhere on the inside of those city walls, and it's just a matter of time till they nab him and grab him and stab him. At this point, Saul is nothing more than a walking dead man. And can we take a time out right here before we read the scripture and can you imagine with me how much different our lives would be as believers today had they been successful in Acts chapter 9 of killing Saul at this early. Imagine how much smaller that book that you hold in your hands right now would be had they killed him right here. But they're there and they know he's on the inside of the wall. There's nowhere to run. He's a walking dead man. That's where we find the story in Acts chapter 9 and verse 23. Acts chapter 9 and verse 23 says, And after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. That's Saul. But their laying await was known of Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. There it is. He's on the inside. They're on the outside. It's just a matter of time. They're just waiting for him to take his life. What makes the difference? Verse 25 says, Then the disciples took him by night and led him down by the wall in a basket. Shazam! Under cover of darkness, in the middle of the night, somewhere up on that wall of that city, some unnamed disciples who we will never know their identity until we get to glory saved the life of he who was to become the Apostle Paul, writer of half of the New Testament. And they did it. 
with a basket. For a few minutes at the beginning of this revival meeting, I want us to think about this thought tonight. The power of a basket. The power of a basket. And this is a very exciting night in Lincoln, in North Carolina. You thought this was just another revival night. You just thought this was another Sunday night service where you were going to come show up and listen to the banjo player and hear some preaching and that was going to be it. But this is a night unlike any other. This tonight is a special service. This is audience participation. You all are going to help me preach this message. I can feel the excitement coming from the cheap seats back here. You all are going to help me preach this. I'm taking notes. I'm looking. If you look to your neighbor, right? This is practice. Look to your neighbor and say, I don't care what they say. Your hair looks good like that. Okay, that was practice, just so you know. Here, here it is for real. Here it is. I want everybody to, to say this real enthusiastically. Point number one. I want you to look to your neighbor and say, Hey, neighbor, I've got a basket. Point number one tonight, I want you to think about this thought. I want you to think about the presence of your basket. What are you talking about, preacher? Here's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about every one of us here tonight have a realm, a circle of influence in your life. I'm not just talking to preachers. I'm just not talking to deacons or Sunday school teachers. I'm not just talking to Christians. You might be here and you might be lost as a ball in tall weeds. I'm telling you, every person here under the sound of my voice, you have a circle of influence in your life. There are people that love you and respect you and will listen to you and care about what you say and what you feel. They may not know a preacher. They may not like a preacher. They may think they may have had a bad experience with a preacher. They may think all preachers are Fruit Loops and morons, but they know you. They like you. They'll listen to you. Now, I'm talking about him. I'm talking about you. You have a basket, a realm of influence in your life. You know, we know this in our life. We know how this works. You all know how good it makes you feel when somebody says a kind word to you, gives you a compliment, how that can make your whole day. And we also know the power of discouragement when some negative Ned or negative Nelly comes along and says something ugly to us and that can ruin our whole day. Can I t take a time out right here? Why is it that it seems at church that it's so much easier for us to use that power to the negative than it is to the positive? Why? It seems like we don't have any problem complaining about, you know, it's too hot, it's too cold, the sermon's too long, and they didn't sing my song, something was supposed to be in the bulletin in there. But it seems like it's so hard for us to use that power when we know how good it makes us feel to hear something positive. Why does it seem like it's so difficult for us? I told you I pastored there in Northeast Ohio for 21 years. I had a lady in my church. She thought she had a unique spiritual gift. She thought it was her spiritual gift. Just about every Sunday, usually right before I got up to preach, she would come up to me and give commentary to me on whether she thought I had gained or lost weight. Can I tell you, usually the report was not good. What a blessing that is right before you get up to preach. Like, I need your help. Like, I don't have a mirror and a scale at my house. I need your help. There's another lady in our church, dear, sainted, elderly woman, Sister Jenny Crow. I'll never forget this. Right before we moved to Tennessee, 
in between Sunday school and church. She was out in the foyer. She looked around like she was getting ready to tell me a big secret. She motioned me over. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, Pastor, have you been dieting again? Because it sure looks like it. Oh, I mean, I was coming up. I, matter of fact, I'll tell you how good that made me feel that day. i tell you what I did for Sister Jenny Crow after service. I walked her and her C&I dog all the way to her car. That's what I did. But you know and you, you understand the reality of this and how it works on a daily basis. By our actions, by our attitudes, when we come in contact with people, we have a realm of influence. You have a basket. But we're not going to leave it there. You ought to think when you come to church. Point number two, look at your neighbor and say, somebody's in my basket. Boy, you're falling on me already. It's only point two. Point number one, the presence of your basket. Point number two, I want you to think about the people in your basket. I'm not going to leave it just in general. I want you to think right now about some people right now. I want you to see some faces and some names of some people who are in your realm of influence right now. Can you think of them? Anybody here married? Two people are here and married in this year. <laughs> Pastor, we better extend this revival. How many are married? Okay, better. How many know that your spouse influences your actions and attitudes? Oh, you better, you better. Fellas, you really better raise the hand because you know the old saying. If daddy ain't happy, ain't nobody cares, but if mama ain't happy. Okay, moving right along. Does everybody here have kids, children? Is there anybody here has grandkids? Look how faster the hands went up for the grandkids. Anybody here think the grandkids are way more awesome than the kids ever hoped to be? Is there anybody here that your daughter and your son-in-law have given you some grandkids? Anybody here have grandkids by your daughter and son-in-law? Can you explain this? I see this phenomenon all over the country. How is it that the prettiest, smartest girl can marry the ugliest, dumbest man and give you the greatest grandkids that ever walked the face of the earth? <coughs> People you work with, your neighbors, People you go to school with, your basket's filling up, isn't it? Kids in your Sunday school class. But if you don't hear anything else I say tonight, you hear what I'm about to say. There are some people that God's going to put, bloop, in your basket, in your realm of influence that you may never know about until you get to glory. And that is why it is important for us always to be at our best for the master because you never know when God's going to, bloop, drop somebody in your basket. And you may not even know it. And I've got a true story that proves this. And I know it's a true story because it happened. I was there when it happened. I was pastoring there, northeast Ohio. I told you. I mean, we were out in the country. You know, Creston, Ohio, zip code, E-I-E-I-O. I mean, it's way out in the country. And uh, I was in, uh, I taught pastors through the Bible adult Sunday school class in our sanctuary. We had a big fan-shaped sanctuary. There were two couples one morning that I did not recognize in my Sunday school class. And so in between Sunday school and church, I went back and introduced myself. And the fellow said, Pastor, if you have a few minutes after church, I'd like to talk to you. I said, well, i got a few minutes now. 
Here's the story he told me. He said, this is, my name is Murray Gibbons. He said, this is my wife, Emily. He said, we are from Ontario, Canada. And he said, Pastor, you don't even know this, but this is not the first time we've been to this church. He said, about a year ago, we were vacationing through the United States. And we were coming up, we were headed back up through Ohio early on a Sunday morning to go back across the bridge in Detroit and go back over into Canada. He said, and my mind went back to a farmer from Ohio that I used to trade cattle with by the name of Ken Brown. If you ever wondered if Farmer Brown was a real person, he is. He lives next door to our church in Creston, Ohio. His wife, Carol, is a real estate agent. He said, and I looked up Creston, Ohio. He said, we were less than an hour from there. We weren't in any hurry to get back home. He said, I said to my wife, I'd kind of like to look up Ken Brown, see my old friend. So we drove to Creston, Ohio, early on a Sunday morning. We went to the Brown's farmhouse. It's within sight of our church. Knocked on the front door. Nobody home. He said, I looked out from the porch. I could see your parking lot here at the church. I could see cars coming in. It's Sunday morning. He said, I said to my wife, Emily, I bet that's where the Browns go to church because it's so close to their house. Let's go over in the parking lot and see if we can find the Browns. So here comes Murray Gibbons. And by the way, we wouldn't have even known this story at all had he not come back. Murray and Emily Gibbons. Oh, by the way, at this point, Murray and Emily Gibbons are in their 60s. Oh, by the way, Murray Gibbons has never been in a church in his life. Now, he's not going to church this morning. He's just going to the parking lot of Canaan Free Will Baptist Church in Creston just looking for Farmer Brown. He said, we pulled up in the parking lot. Lots of people getting out of their cars. Couldn't find the Browns. He said, I said to my wife, church hasn't started yet. Let's go in the foyer. Let's go inside. Now listen very closely to what I'm about to say. He said, we did not find the Browns. But we found such a friendly welcome. There was somebody at the door, shook our hand, gave us a bulletin. He said, by the time, are, are you listening to me? I'm talking about before a service ever happened. I'm talking about sometimes we as church members, we get to thinking that this is a spectator sport. And all we're supposed to do is come into the church house, sit down, plop down, take up about 18 or 20 inches, however, you know, some people better than average. But anyway, whatever time, the, 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 how much we take up, and then just sit there and plop down and say, here I am, preacher, bless me if you can. And don't tell me to smile either because this is my natural look. Talking about the attitude that we're, this is a spectator sport that all we're supposed to do is like Olympic speed skating judges with a scorecard. Well, I like the band today. There's a little bit more banjo. I'll give out an 8.5, you know. The preacher, he, he, was, he was doing pretty good. I'll give it a 7 point. I'm talking about your response. I'm talking about your basket. I'm talking about him. I'm talking about you and me. We didn't find the Browns. We found such a friendly welcome. He said, by the time we went through that foyer, there must have been 20 or 30 people shook our hand and welcomed us. And so finally I looked at my wife and I said, it's obvious the Browns aren't here. If they'd asked me, I would have told them they're Presbyterian. They go down the street. He said, it's obvious the Browns aren't here. But we are. And it looks like church is just about to start. And these folks have been so kind, it wouldn't hurt us to go on in for church. He said, oh, pastor, we're not church people. And we're from Canada. 
We had no idea there was anybody who had church like that. We had a Southern Gospel Quartet that I sang in for 25 years. We apparently sang that morning and said, we'd never heard singing like that. He said, and then you got up to preach. He said, you went this way and that way and got red in the face and spit back about 10 rows and acted like you were really serious about what you were saying. He said, I still remember a year later exactly what you preached on. He said, we got back in the car. He said, it's all I could talk about all the way home. How friendly everybody was. And, and just the atmosphere of the church. The singing, the preaching. He said, I couldn't sleep that night. I couldn't sleep for the next week. I kept talking about And finally, after a couple weeks, my wife got so tired of me talking about this church that she got up on a Sunday and said, honey, there's got to be a church around here we can find to go to. And we walked two blocks to a Bible church. The gospel was presented. We walked the aisle. We have given our lives to Christ. We are getting baptized next Sunday. But we have told our pastor so much about the influence of this church that we have come back today from Canada. This is our pastor and his wife to let your congregation know you don't even know who we are, but we are on our way to heaven primarily through the ministry of this church. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I can think of nothing that ought to drive us to our knees more than the reality that somebody is counting on you and me to do our job. They don't know him. They know you. They know me. There are people in your basket. Takes us to a whole new level. Talking about revival, can you think of anything? The responsibility. We've mentioned Roger Duncan several times in this service. Brother Roger used to tell the story of about a man up north, way up north where it snows a lot in the wintertime. And he was an old, he was an alcoholic. He was, he was a bad drunk. And at Christmas time, with what little money the family had, he took it and headed to the bar at Christmas. Big snowstorm. He's wading through the drifts, headed to the bar. All of a sudden in the snow and the winter the, the, the blowing snow, he hears a little voice saying, walk a little slower, Daddy. I'm coming in your shoes. And he looks back, and his little boy is trying to keep pace with his dad, and he's putting his feet in the tracks in the snow with his dad's, and conviction fell on that fella. He thought, dear Lord, my steps should be taking my son to the house of God, and they're taking him to a bar. Talking about your basket, your realm of influence. I want you to see the people, the names, the faces in your realm of influence. The presence of your basket. The people in your basket. Third, look your neighbor real serious. Give your meanest, most serious look. Some of you just keep your natural face on that you've had through this service looking at me. Look your neighbor and say, there's a problem in the basket. Houston, we've got a problem. The people, the presence of your basket, the people in your basket. But then I want you to think about the problem in the basket. Proverbs 14.4 says this, where no oxen are, the crib is clean. You get that, right? You don't have to live on a farm. I don't have to draw a picture on that, right? If you don't have any animals down on the farm, you're not going to have a mess to clean up. But Proverbs 14.4 goes on to say, but much labor is done through the increase of the ox. You don't have any animals down on the farm. You're not going to have any mess to clean up. If you don't have any animals, you're probably not going to get much done on the farm. Brother Luke, I want to tell you, I mean, you've been at this, and 
I'm not going to say that I can give you any advice, but director of church revitalization for five years, I'm going to lay on you the secret to never having another problem in this church. Are you ready for it? Are you ready for it? Here it comes. The secret to never having another problem in this church is don't have any people in your church. Because we all have problems, right? People have problems. You have problems, right? If you don't have any problems, I'm going to come live to your house for a while. We've all got problems. And let me tell you something. In the world we live in, people get themselves in big problems. I'm talking about Jerry Springer show problems. I'm talking about messes. Probably didn't expect to hear Jerry Springer brought up at the revival, but... Let's go back to that night on that wall. Imagine, you ought to think when you come to church, put yourself, you are one of those unnamed disciples. You've just been called over to a basket to save a man's life. Wonder what they saw when they looked in that basket. Do you realize up until a few weeks before this, he had been a murderer, a killer of Christians? You realize the early church was very small at this time. Do you realize that the people who have been called upon to save this man's life, that man in that basket might have been responsible for killing some of their friends and family members? Could we have blamed them if they dropped the ropes and said, <laughs> I don't think I want to get involved in this. I mean, this guy might be a double agent. He might be trying to get on the inside of this deal and kill more of us. Can I ask you a personal question? What do you see when you look in your basket? Because let me tell you, let me give you Jim McComas church growth principle number one. Are you ready for it? People are annoying. Don't look at me spiritual. When I said that right there, you thought of somebody in your life right now. A face just popped up in your mind. You know that annoying person that gets on your last nerve? It might be somebody in your family, a friend, somebody you know at work. That person that, you know, you hate to see coming because you ask them how they are and they're going to give you an organ recital of every body part that's hurt for the last 30 years. That person that's always some, causing problems at the family reunion, getting on Facebook and creating some kind of drama. You better be thinking of somebody right now because if you can't think of somebody, you might be it. I'm just saying. What do you see in your basket? You ever walked out, Sunday school teacher, you ever walked out of a Sunday school class and said, I'm never going back in that room again. Those little demons don't listen to one thing I say. You ever never did that? Just keep teaching. It'll come to you. For the last 12 years of my pastorate, I taught in our local public school one hour a week. Weekday, release time, religious education. It's a constitutionally protected program in about a thousand schools in this country. Public school, not Christian school, public school. Constitutionally protected with, with parental permission. We walk kids, either study hall or music time or some kind of you know, special time. And we had a building built within walking distance of the school for that purpose, the local churches that got together. I taught 250 middle school, public school kids at the Bible one hour a week. And by the end of the year, sometimes I knew the good ones. I, I, some, some of the good ones I did not know their name, but I knew all the bad ones on a first-name basis. Matter of fact, I had a full head of hair before I started that deal. And I remember there was one boy who was particularly annoying, because people are annoying, if you forgot my point already. His name was Kyle. He was an eighth grader. He got on my last nerve. 
I, I had to almost throw him out of the class two or three times because he was always interrupting. And, but my life and my ministry was changed forever one day when I came to the school to get the kids, and there's an ambulance out front of the school. And I said to the school secretary, I said, what's the ambulance for? They said, it's Kyle. He's been having horrible seizures. And there's two teachers down here at the end of the counter. I'm over here and them talking. One of them said, I think it's that boy's home life. All the things that that boy has to endure. See, I didn't know anything about his home life. All I saw was a problem in my best. And can I give you a tip? That person in your life that gets on your last nerve that's so annoying, do you know that really what everybody needs in this life, people just need the love of God in their life. They need Jesus. So from that moment on, I found out that the next, when Kyle was back at school, I made a conscious effort to be, just pay attention to him and, and talk to him and try to be kind to him. And one day I got an email from him. And he said, I need to talk to you. If you can come into school. And, then, uh, and of course, I said, I'll be in tomorrow. And this, the principal let me get him out of class because they were concerned about him. And I went to the principal's conference room with him and he began to pour out his family story. He just finally broke down crying. He said, Preacher, I just need God in my life. Now, please don't tell the ACOU this next part, but in a public school, during school hours, in the principal's conference room, I led Kyle to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and brought him a Bible the next day with his name on it and presented it to him in the, in the cafeteria. There's a problem. I wonder, I wonder what we see in our basket on a daily basis. Oh, yes. People, is, is it easy ministering to people? No, it is not. But, oh, listen, I'm glad I can close with fourth and final point. Look your neighbor one more time and say, there's something good in my basket. We looked at the presence of your basket and the people in your basket. And, yes, there are problems in ministering to people, but, oh, the potential in your basket. If we could go, if you're one of those, those guys and you've got the ropes and you're trying to figure out whether you're going to help save this guy on that wall, what would we say if we could go back to them? Good night, boys. Hold the rope strong. You have no idea what's in that basket. I may not look like much tonight, but that hand that just crawled in that basket is going to pick up a quill. He's going to write the, half the New Testament. He's going to write the Romans Road to Salvation. That's the greatest evangelist since Jesus Christ. He's the greatest theological mind of modern times. He's going to be the first missionary. He's going to Thessalonica. He's going to go to Galatia. He's going to go to Rome. He's going to give his life for Christ. He's going to say those words, preach the word, be instant in season. That's the Apostle Paul. He doesn't look like much, but oh, boys, hold the rope strong. There's potential. In your basket. Oh, I wonder what you've got in your basket. Wonder what's in those Sunday school classes here in this church this morning. I wonder that anointing. You say, preacher, are you saying that God could call some great preacher or missionary or evangelist or, or use somebody great? Hey, listen, how many believe God's still in the saving business? Say amen. amen. How many believe he's still calling people to preach and be missionaries and to work for him? Say Amen. They got to come from somewhere. They might well come from Lincoln to North Carolina. Somebody better hold the ropes of their testimony strong. Somebody better stay on the job and stay faithful because somebody's counting on you and me. wonder what you have in your basket. Oh, somebody better stay on the job 
somebody that's thinking about quitting, somebody that's discouraged. Oh, listen. Somebody's counting on you. They're counting on me. If I could close this sermon out tonight. Here's what I'd like to do to close this sermon. I'd like to get, if I could, I'd love to get you all in a big old time machine and dial up that time machine and take you back. Let's go way back. I'd take that time machine, first of all, and I'd take it back to 1975. Yes, young people, life did exist in 1975. I was there. It's the summer of 1975. We've just landed in a little place outside of Apple Creek, Ohio. Apple Creek, Ohio, home of the Johnny Appleseed Festival. Old Johnny went through there planting apples years ago. They're still having a parade for him. There's a cream-colored house. There's a couple by the name of Gary and Carol Oswald. They're coming out of the house. They're getting in their station wagon. They're driving their station wagon a quarter of a mile down the street. They're headed to the Millbourne Manor Trailer Park. They're headed up Holly Drive. They're headed to the last trailer. Kids are coming out of the trailers and getting in the station wagon. And if you were to interview Gary and Carol Oswald tonight and say, what are you doing? Here's what they'd say. It's vacation Bible school week down at the church. And we're just gathering up some kids. We're taking them to Bible school. And right now some of you are saying, preacher, why are you wasting our time at the end of this sermon? It's 7.05. It's time to go. We've got to beat the Methodist to Bojangles tonight. But why are you doing why, why are you telling us about some people that are going to Bible school? We've all went to Bible school. We've all served in Bible school. We've all brought children to Bible school. Not a big deal. I'm telling you because it was a big deal to me. On the last trailer... At the end of Holly Drive, my sister and I lived. And Gary and Carol Oswald, every night that week, summer 1975, they brought my sister and I to Bible school. I was best friends with their son, Randy. We had just completed kindergarten together. And on Friday night of vacation Bible school at the Grace Brethren Church in Worcester, Ohio, as a six-year-old boy, I heard the gospel. I was taken into a room. I was, shared the gospel, and I bowed my head, and I made Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. I have not been everything I should have been, but he's been everything he promised and so much more. And I have many times over the years thought about the people who taught the lessons that week and made the crafts and did the snacks. I wonder if they'd had a bad week at work. I wonder if somebody said, this is a waste of time and effort and talent and energy and money. And listen, please don't get me wrong. I am no big deal, but I believe with all of my heart on the day of judgment that every soul I will have ever won in my ministry, each one of those will have a part in the reward because for one week of time, they put me in their basket. I could take that time machine, move it up. I'd go to 1978. In 1978, hold on, some of you are not going to like this. In 1978, as a nine-year-old boy, I announced that God had called me to preach. I've had people come up to me and say, I don't know if I believe that or not. All due respect, I was there when it happened. Not a lot of people take you seriously when you're nine years old you say you're going to be a preacher. See, I had two uncles that were very prominent preachers in our area. My great-grandfather had been a circuit-riding preacher in the hills of uh, Eastern Kentucky and West Virginia. It's sort of like the family business. Susie wants to be a nurse. Johnny wants to be a fireman. Jimmy wants to be a preacher. Go, go. 
will play. But there are a couple of people that took me serious. I'll never forget, we had started in third grade, we started attending a small Christian school in our area, Calvary Christian Academy, Wadsworth, Ohio. Very small, probably 100 students K through 12. I'll never forget on Mondays, the whole school would come together. We'd have a little convocation, have a prayer, scripture reading, song to start the week. I'll never forget on Monday morning, Don Ballard, our principal, walks out in front of the whole school and a booming voice says, where's Jimmy McComb? How many know when the principal calls you out by name, usually it's not good? Everybody got quiet. They were so excited. They just knew I was going to get it for something. You could have heard a pin drop. I raise my hand. He walks over. Everybody's watching. He's got something in his hand. He comes over. He says, Jimmy, I heard some news about you. I heard that you've announced your call. You surrendered to preach it. I said, yes, sir. He said, well, I want you to know I'm proud of you, and I'm going to be praying for you. And then he handed me a gift from his own library. It was a Ryrie adult study commentary on the book of John. Now, look, people third grade. I wasn't the sharpest knife in the third grade. I was the last one to learn cursive. I was the last one to learn my multiplication tables. Matter of fact, I had to sing my multiplication tables finally to learn it. Matter of fact, if you ask me tonight, well, eight times eight, well, I'd have to go eight times eight is 64. Eight times, is that right? Eight, 40, 48, that's right, 64. I mean, I wish I could tell you I got something real deep in my devotions as a third grader from an adult Ryrie Bible study. But I tell you what I did get that day. Somebody who I looked up to and respected had just validated a decision I had made for Christ, and I have never forgotten it 40-plus years later. You know what Don Ballard did when he gave me that book? Get in the basket, son. I'm for you. I believe you, and I believe in you. My third grade teacher in that school, Sue Thomas, she's 23 years old. She just got out of college herself. She said, God called you to preach? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, good, you're preaching chapel on Friday. Third grade. I wrote it out. Preached on Noah and the Ark. Lasted five minutes. I know you don't believe that, but it's true. Red pencil. I wish I could tell you. 15 people got saved and 10 people got called to the mission field. I'm sure it was unremarkable because I can't remember a thing I said myself. But I do remember one thing. I can tell you I remember it like it was yesterday. The feeling that I had when I closed my Bible and I walked off that stage. The feeling I had just done what God wanted me to do. And can I tell you there is still today no greater feeling than doing what God would have. See, I haven't told you the rest of the story. If you'd have lined up 100 third graders, I'd have been the last one you would have picked to be a preacher. I'd had speech therapy all the way through second grade. I'd had several procedures on my ears for my hearing. I was so shy, I would not order for myself in a restaurant. But the will of God will never send you where the grace of God will not sustain you and give you what you need to get the job done. I'm sure glad for Sue Thomas, a Christian school teacher. She stays in contact with my mother and her. We're friends. A few years ago, she was, I found out she was kind of depressed. She kind of looked back on her life and felt like she hadn't counted for much. Oh, I was so glad to be able to get her phone number and tell her, listen, you don't know it, but I'm talking about you all over this country. Oh, I'm so thankful that Sue Thomas put me in her basket. So thankful for people like Don Ballard. My pastor growing up, Carlos Browning.
our little country church there in West Salem, Ohio. Missionaries from France had come to our Christian school in my junior year of high school, and I just, I kind of wanted to go work with them between my junior and senior year in the summer for my senior year of high school. I wanted to go work with those missionaries in France. They said, we have a program for kids, an internship, about $1,500 with airfare and everything. This is 1986. It might as well have been $15 million. We didn't have any money. My pastor said, get a sermon together. You're going to preach in our little church Sunday night. I said, okay. I preached at our church. Before I could give an invitation or anything, Pastor Browning's up there in the, in the pulpit. He's got his arm around me. I thought, what is going on here? He looks out at the congregation. He said, that was a good sermon Jimmy just preached, wasn't it? Yeah, amen. Good as a 16-year-old preacher just learned how to preach. He said, and you want a copy of that sermon, don't you? I mean, we gave away all of our sermons to anybody who wanted them on cassette tape for free. Kids, a cassette tape is right after eight-track tape. Just ask somebody later, they'll explain to you. And he, he points down to the communion table. There's a yellow legal pad down there. He said, there's a sign-up sheet down here, and y'all are going to sign up and order that sermon on cassette tape for $5 a piece, and we're going to send this boy to France. And he's closing out in prayer, and I'm going off the stage, and I'm in tears. I'm thinking... Pastor Brown, in all due respect, you've lost your ever-loving mind. Isn't that what everyone wants to do, to pay $5 for something that's normally free of a kid preacher just learn how to preach? I said, there ain't nobody going to go for that deal. And you know how you have snapshots in your mind of your childhood? I mean, just really moments that stand out in your, in your life. I will never forget when I opened my eyes. They were lined down that middle aisle. We didn't have any rich people in our church. The first person in the line was Sister Eunice Shook. She's probably the poorest person in our church. And listen, there wasn't one of them that paid $5 for it. They paid $25. Some of them paid $50. Some of them paid $100. That's an expensive cassette tape right there. Ladies and gentlemen, I stand before you, the CEO and executive director of Free Will Baptist Family Ministries, 225 employees. Listen, I, before that I worked at, for, at, at National North American Ministries every day. I worked with Dr. Brad Ransom and Dr. David Crow for five years. I walked to my office looking at Dr. David Crow and Dr. Brad Ransom. I thought, good grief, I work with two doctors and I'm not even a nurse's aide. True story. I promise you right now, these, these are one current employee and one former employee. Right now, when I go into administrative meeting, I'm the least educated person in the building, and I run the place. I am not the product of an institution. I am the product of plain, ordinary Christian people just like you who for a moment in time invested themselves in my life. He was a scourge of the church. We couldn't have blamed them, could we, if they'd have dropped the ropes and said, I don't want to get involved. But they saw something in there. They saw potential. And with strong arms and willing hearts, they picked up the ropes. And they lowered the greatest preacher, writer of half the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, over the wall to safety 
in a basket. The invitation is several different things tonight. You're able to help the people in your basket. If you're not saved, if you're not right with God, you can't help anybody. They're following you not to a good ending. You need to get right with God so you can help the people that are following you. But if you are here, you are a Christian, how are you doing? How are you doing with that job that God has given you? I'm putting it squarely on you and me. I'm not putting it on him. There, the, the, he has a responsibility, but I'm telling you, we have a responsibility to the people in our basket that God has placed. How are you doing with that? And then the other part of this is, as I'm naming names like Don Ballard and Sue Thomas and my mother and, and a whole bunch of Pastor Browning, you can think of some people that have been faithful in your life to invest in you. Might have been a godly Sunday school teacher, a mom or a dad or grandma or grandpa or a pastor. I do not think, here's the homework for this message. I don't think it'd be inappropriate. Somebody needs to make a phone call. If those people are still living, give me the roses while I'm living. Go make a phone call. Go send a text. Go make a visit and say, thank you for giving to the Lord. I'm alive. Thank you for putting me in your basket. Thank you for investing in my life. If that person, if they're here, I, I believe you ought to do it before you leave this building today. Thank you for giving to the Lord. And then, Lord, help me with the people that now that God has given me. Because somebody's in my basket. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for each one that's gathered in this service. And Lord, we come to close a time of invitation, a time where we invite folks to act on what they have heard tonight. And God, I don't think of anything, I can't think of anything that ought to drive us to our knees any more than the reality that somebody is counting, their eternal destiny is counting on whether we do our job. And so God, now I pray that you'd bless in this invitation time. I pray that one that may not be assured, they not be 100% sure they're on their way to heaven, I pray that they would come. We could pray with them, take a Bible, and they can leave here with their sins forgiven on their way to heaven. I pray for believers Maybe some that would just like to say, Lord, I don't have anything else, but I just want to come and say thank you. I can look back, as Brother Jim has talked tonight, I can look back on my life. There's no such thing as a self-made person. I can see that I'm the product of faithful people that you've placed in my life. Thank you, Lord. And then some of us need to make some holy vows to rededicate ourselves to doing a good job with the people that you've placed in our basket. Maybe some that would like in this first revival, first day of revival, to come pray for those souls, those faces, those people that are in their basket. Whatever the need is, I pray you'd meet it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand all over the building, and they sing. time of invitation, a time where we invite folks. I do not know much, but I know this. We're talking about revival. Every great move of God in the Bible can be traced to somebody kneeling at an altar somewhere in the Bible. You can look it up. I can hear my Savior calling. Somebody's counting on you. I can hear they're not counting on him, they're counting on you. What are we doing? With the responsibility that I God has given us.
Oh God, help me to be faithful. God's laid somebody on your heart and your mind and your thoughts that you're thinking about right now that may die and go to hell if we don't do our job. Oh God, help us to be faithful. Somebody is counting on us. I cannot think of any message or any thought that ought to drive us to prayer than that. Where he leads me, I will follow. Your call. How are you doing with your job? While these are praying, others are coming. God's speaking to you. Revival's personal. It begins by drawing a circle. Get in the middle of the circle and say, God, send revival here. Not my brother, not my sister. It's me, oh Lord. Standing in the lead of prayer. I'll go with him through the garden. I'll go Father, we thank you tonight, Lord, for the message that we've heard. And God, I pray that, Lord, as we leave this place, God, you would continue to work in our hearts and that we would apply the truth to our lives. God, use us for your glory. Use us, God, to impact eternity, Father, and the influence we have, Lord, amongst those in our basket. Father, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I appreciate you being here tonight. Please keep in mind uh, tomorrow night uh, at 7 o'clock.
um, Brother Jim McComas will be uh, preaching for us again. I, now I know why everybody was so confused. I'm, I had no idea, um, but uh, certainly thankful for the message tonight and what God's doing. And uh, Please come back tomorrow night. I uh, love and appreciate each one of you. I uh, thank you for being here tonight. You are dismissed.